This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Why is so much writing so bad? Why is it so hard to decipher a legal contract or to follow an academic article, or to understand the instructions for setting up a wireless home network. Now, there's no shortage of uh, hypotheses, and the most popular is that bad writing is a deliberate choice, that uh, bureaucrats insist on gibberish to uh, cover their anatomy, that uh, academics in the softer fields try to dress up their lack of substance by uh, spouting highfalutin gobbledygook. Uh, uh, um, I've never found this argument particularly compelling because I just know too many uh, scientists and other scholars who uh, have a great deal to say, who have no desire to impress, no need to obfuscate. Still, their writing stinks. The other hypothesis that I uh, that suggested to me is that it's digital media that are ruining the language, that Google is making us stupid, that Twitter is forcing us to think in 140 characters. Now, according to this hypothesis, uh, it must have been much better before the advent of digital media. And uh, those of you who are old enough will remember that age in the 1980s when uh, bureaucrats wrote in plain prose, uh, Teenagers spoke in fluent paragraphs, and uh, every academic article was a masterpiece in the art of the essay. You remember those days, don't you, in the 1980s, or was it the 1970s? Uh, The thing is, of course, that bad writing has always been with us, and one can see almost identical complaints about the quality of writing and the imminent decline of the language in uh, every decade and every century, literally going back to the uh, uh, invention of the printing press. And yes, literally. Uh, I, I think that this, the perennial abundance of bad writing just speaks to the fact that writing is inherently difficult. It involves a, uh, an act of pretense and it involves an act of a uh, great deal of craftsmanship. And that uh, the, rather than uh, blaming it on the, the usual suspects, we have to think about what uh, goes into good writing and how uh, we can best improve it. Uh, I was... Uh, I decided to write a style manual because I've uh, spent the last couple of decades of my professional life trying to express complex ideas in, uh, for a wide readership, and also because I, uh, the ideas that I try to convey are often about language uh, itself, and so I've got a, a dual interest in the subject. Where to begin? Well, I began by asking uh, a number of respected writers 
uh, where, which style manuals they read uh, as they were mastering their craft, beginning with uh, the other writer in the household, my wife, Rebecca Goldstein, who has uh, published uh, 10 books of fiction and nonfiction. And the answer that I got from every last one of them was none. Well, th- this was kind of sobering. Uh, what did I hope to accomplish, uh, given that most, uh, most stylists that I know didn't have the need for a style manual? Um, well, what it, uh, it forced me to realize what the first prerequisite to good writing is, and that is uh, immersion in uh, the world of edited prose. Uh, I believe that this is a universal, that every great writer has spent an enormous amount of time consuming the prose of others. And uh, Ian, maybe you can later uh, divulge whether you were influenced by any style manuals as you were uh, developing as a writer. But, uh, but, but most of my experience have not. Uh, the reason that uh, good re- reading is, uh, and, and by good reading it's not simply consuming the prose, but rather lingering over examples of good writing and trying to reverse engineer them, asking yourself the question, why did I just enjoy that sentence? What was so good about it? How did the, the writer that I am now reading uh, have that effect on me? And I suspect that that is a universal in, in good writing, and there's a good reason for it. Uh, a massive amount of the English language consists of uh, irregularity, of uh, richness that can be absorbed in no other way but uh, massive exposure. There, the English language has half a million words. Uh, a, uh, no one knows all of them, but uh, probably a literate writer knows uh, on the order of uh, 100,000 or more. Each word has to be acquired in an act of exposure and memorization. English probably has as many idioms as it has words. Uh, English has constructions. There are various uh, tropes and gadgets and gimmicks and turns of phrase and, uh, and, and paragraph structures that you can only acquire by immersion in the world of print. Uh, indeed, uh, many of the errors that betray someone as uh, illiterate don't consist of... Uh, breaches of any kind of logic or rules, but quite the opposite. They consist of taking a rule to an extreme. So if someone spells lose with two O's, for example, uh, if someone uses an apostrophe in the possessive its, uh, if someone uses uh, enormity to mean great size instead of great evil, they are not being illogical. They are following perfectly predictable rules of English spelling, punctuation, and word formation, what they haven't done and what they're, what they're uh, betraying about themselves is that they uh, have not paid sufficient attention to the idiosyncrasies of the, of the printed page. Another advantage of good reading as a, uh, the first step in uh, mastering the craft of writing is that it's a much more pleasant way to acquire the craft than to memorize a list of do's and don'ts. And many of the style manuals that, um, that, that, uh, that I consumed have a kind of stern, censorious tone, that writing is, a, uh, is an ordeal. It's a, there are, it's a minefield that one has to tiptoe across and one courts condemnation and, and, and abuse with every, every, every footfall. Uh, but consuming good prose as a way of becoming a better writer is a much more inviting means of becoming a writer anyway. The second thing that that I think goes into good writing, and again, this is well before you get to rules of usage and and, uh, and, and errors and pitfalls, is to to adopt the right 
uh, mindset, the right um, act of pretense when you're writing, because pre- pretense it is. Unlike spoken conversation, which is instinctive to us, uh, and which can be guided by the give and take of face-to-face contact, you can, when you're in conversation with someone, you can uh, watch as they furrow their brows or raise their eyebrows, or they can break in, they can ask for clarification, and also you, the person in front of you is someone who's known to you. When you're writing, you're, you're casting your bread onto the waters. You don't know who is going to be reading it. They're not there. Uh, you may be dead when they read it. Uh, and, uh, uh, and so you have to imagine who your readership is and also imagine what kind of uh, communication you're engaged in. And the different styles of prose can be characterized by different assumptions about the scenario of communication. And I was, I've been influenced by a wonderful book called Clear and Simple as the Truth by the literary scholars Francis Noël Thomas and Mark Turner, who differentiated a number of prose styles, and one of them in particular is I think, the closest that we could come to an aspiration for general prose writers, and they call it classic style. And they define classic style as uh, involving the following pretense. Uh, you, the writer, have seen something in the world. It's an objectively true happening. It's out there. Your reader has not yet noticed it. You are orienting your reader so that the reader can see it with her own eyes. And you do so by means of conversation. So the central metaphor is joint attention. Now, this might seem banal and obvious, but in fact, there are a variety of alternative styles, each defined by a different set of assumptions about what you're trying to accomplish as a writer. There's, for example, a um, reflexive style where a writer uh, struggles to uh, externalize some kind of subjective, idiosyncratic, and mostly ineffable Uh, personal reaction to events. It's a very different model. There is oracular style, where the writer sees something that no one else can see and announces his vision to the world. And there's uh, self-conscious style, what infects most academic writing, where the writer's chief goal is to um, escape accusations that he's naive about the uh, epistemological assumptions underlying his own uh, enterprise. And so a lot of academic writing is uh, stereotypically awful because the writer is so terrified of being convicted of making an error that it is larded with uh, apologies. And uh, this is the concept of language is extremely difficult to define. There are many theories and lack of consensus and more research needs to be done and on and on and on before they get to say anything about, say, language itself. Um, The uh, goal of classic style is to try to discard all of the self-conscious reflections on how hard it is to know anything or to say anything about anything, but rather to describe your subject matter as if it could be seen by anyone competent to see as long as they were provided with an unobstructed view. The next step uh, in in writing, and again, this is way before any consideration of um, the split infinitives, fused participles, and all of the, the things that people associate with style manuals, is overcoming a uh, widespread cognitive li- limitation goes by many names, but my favorite is the curse of knowledge. The difficulty that all of us have when we know something in imagining what it's like for someone who doesn't know it. It's almost impossible to subtract uh, a bit of knowledge and to do the 
act of, of empathy or perspective taking that allows you to appreciate what it's like for someone else who doesn't know what you, what you know. Uh, the prototypical demonstration uh, known to every psychology undergraduate is the false belief task. Three-year-old comes into the lab, uh, is given a box of Smarties, opens the box, and is surprised to find pencils inside. So you put the pencils back in. Now Jason comes in, and you ask the child, what does Jason think is in the box? And the child will say, pencils. Uh, what did you think was in the box before you came in here? And the child will say, pencils. That is, they, once they know it, they can't imagine what it's like not to know it. Now, we outgrow the, um, uh, the, the, the curse of knowledge a bit, but we are all victims uh, of it. And uh, I would say that the, after having the wrong model of prose communication, being a victim of the curse of knowledge is the, uh, the, the main impediment to clear writing. It simply doesn't occur to a writer that the audience... Uh, isn't familiar with the jargon or the lingo or the uh, abstractions. It also puts the lie to the lazy excuse among uh, many professionals, including uh, but not limited to academics, that they have no choice but to write in uh, technical language because it would just get tedious to spell out uh, technical concepts every time. If you're in a circle of uh, cognoscenti, then you have every right. In fact, there's no alternative to using a lot of jargon. Uh, the reason that I think this is wrong is that I am repeatedly bewildered by articles in my own professional field written for the likes of me that I still don't understand. Uh, and I know why I don't understand it. It's because they're badly written. And they're badly written because of the curse of knowledge. Uh, I have a, a discussion of an a aspect of prose style that is, I think, absolutely crucial, which is entirely neglected, as if it didn't exist in most of the classic manuals, and that is coherence. That is, uh, prose craft above the level of the word, phrase, and sentence, but at the level of the paragraph, uh, or the, even the pair of successive sentences, the paragraph and the essay. How do you avoid non sequiturs? How do you avoid a sense of uh, choppiness or disjointedness? How do you allow a reader to keep track of the players who are repeatedly mentioned across sentences? How do you introduce uh, uh, negation? How do you know what it is you're as what it is the reader is not supposed to be thinking, and how do you structure an, an overall uh, narrative arc. Finally, the chapter that I suspect will get the most attention is called Telling Right from Wrong, and it is about uh, so-called correct and incorrect usage. Uh, that is, is it a, um, a heinous sin to uh, use a comma to join two clauses, to use the word aggravate to mean uh, annoy as opposed to worsen or intensify, to use a fused participle, like uh, I object to uh, Sheila's leave, Sheila leaving as opposed to Sheila's leaving, apostrophe S, split infinitives, uh, singular they. Did uh, President Obama make a um, grammatical howler when he said no American should be under a cloud of suspicion because of what they look like, where the, uh, allegedly the plural they disagrees in number with the singular uh, no American, uh, and, and so on. Now, those of you who have sort of cocked an ear to issues of usage may be under the impression that there is a controversy between the so-called uh, prescriptivists, those who tell you how language ought to be used, and the descriptivists, typically academic linguists who describe how language in fact is used. Uh, I uh, argue that this is a false dichotomy and in fact exemplify 
uh, by what I'm doing in the book, the, the falseness of the dichotomy. Namely, I am a descriptive linguist. I'm fascinated by how people speak and write, but I'm spending 300 pages bossing my readers around. Uh, this, it, the reason it's a false dichotomy is that uh, while it is true that many of the uh, so-called rules of usage, like don't split infinitives, don't use fused participles or dangling modifiers or singular they, turn out to be utterly bogus. That is, they uh, do not conform to the logic of English grammar. They do not characterize the practice of the best stylists in English, and they never characterize the process of uh, the, the uh, prose of the best stylists in English. A lot of them were pulled out of the uh, out of thin air based on. Uh, cockamamie theories of the English language which are instantly refuted by any kind of literary scholarship and, if followed, actually make uh, the quality of prose worse rather than better. This does not mean that um, you could just go ahead and write it however you please because uh, it's clear that there is bad writing and there is advice on how to make writing better. And that includes being sensitive to the expectations of a virtual community of literate uh, uh, readers. And what grammatical correctness consists of is simply the expectations of the uh, audience that you want to write for. There is no uh, legislative body when it comes to the English language. Uh, There's no uh, English academy. Uh, Nor is it true, as so many people think, that the editors of dictionaries function as such an uh, arbiter or or, uh, legislative body. Uh, I can speak with some authority on this because I'm a consultant to the American Heritage Dictionary. I, I chair their usage panel. And the first question I asked the editor when I joined was, um, so how do you guys decide what goes into the dictionary? And he said, we pay attention to the way people use language. Uh, that is, when it comes to what's correct or incorrect in English, there's no one in charge. The lunatics are running the asylum. Uh, and so... Um, uh, a dictionary that said that the word nauseous must only be used to mean uh, nauseating, as in a nauseous roller coaster ride, and may not be used to mean nauseated, as in the children uh, were nauseous when they got out of the roller coaster, uh, would be useless as a guide to writers because it would misinform you about the expectations of your readers. That's true of dictionaries now, it's always been true. But in any case, uh, I do offer some positive advice. It, it is really, despite the fact that some traditional rules ought to be thrown out uh, the, the window. There are others that you'd be well advised to follow. Uh, if you, for example, um, are impressed by fancy schmancy words and you think that fulsome is a synonym for full or that meretricious is a posh way of saying meritorious, uh, you could get yourself into trouble. If I thanked my host today for her fulsome introduction, uh, I would not be complimenting either her or doing any credit to myself, because fulsome uh, to a literate reader means um, excessively and insincerely flattering. It does not, it's not a uh, hoity-toity synonym for full. That's just one of many examples where uh, a good writer really ought to hone a, an appreciation of how words and idioms and uh, phrases are likely to be interpreted by a circle of uh, fellow literate readers and writers. Uh, And that's why the prescriptivist-descriptivist controversy is just not a controversy. But in any case, uh, just to to sum up, even the most irksome errors of usage are, I think, a small part of what goes into writing. And they pale in importance behind uh, 
adopting classic style or some other defensible style and having a clear idea of what that style is, the uh, overcoming the curse of knowledge and principles of coherence. So yes, pay attention to the fine points of spelling, punctuation, grammar, and diction, but the priority in writing uh, consists of these far more uh, psychological aspects of the writing mindset. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Are we sitting too close? <laughs> well, I mean, if you're them. American, I know there's a different uh, social function. Here. Yes. Yep. Well, we know that actually you do come bearing a whip sometimes because <laughs> um, you've confessed that you do not tolerate a comma split from your students, even in an email. Yes, that is true. So the yep. com- but before we get to the comma split uh, and the works of Samuel Beckett... Um, I just want to sort of zoom back. Uh, I was looking at my shelves the other day, and you occupy just under one meter. <laughs> and um, what's interesting about a writer's shelf, I think, is that it tells a story, a story which you're not, you're not necessarily fully in charge with. It's an emergent story. And uh, I was thinking, well, what, what is the narrative here? What is the paragraph, the sentence, the, uh, the short story, as it were, that's emerging. And it helped me when I saw you described in the newspaper as a thinker, um, something I th- hope we could all lay claim to, but I rather liked it, very understated. <laughs> it has an 18th century ring, and I'm going to quote from a, an essay you wrote um, when you say, and you're speaking... And that's why I like the term. It has that echo of the Age of Enlightenment. And you say the great thinkers of the Age of Enlightenment were scientists. Hobbes, Locke, Hume, Descartes, Spinoza, etc. Uh, and seeing that and looking at your meter, I thought, actually, your project is one that was named after William Ewell, uh, the 19th century scientist, and then re- uh, revived by E.O. Wilson. Consilience. Um, it seems to me you're an Enlightenment project man in the business of unifying all knowledge under one great roof. You did that in your personal life. You're a scientist who married a novelist. Um, <laughs> but more than that, you've, um, you've covered the whole field of, uh, 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 as an empirical scientist, and yet you've constantly wandered into the territory of the humanities, sometimes... Um, finding a pushback. And in fact, um, what uh, your essay, that rather sparky essay, was was some controversy um, involving scientism. So my first question to you really is, what is it that, say, the great revolution of our generation in the last 30 years of cognitive science brings to the business of language and grammar um, more than just mere logical, clear thinking. What, in your experience as an empirical scientist, do you feel that you're bringing to bear on this, on this matter? Oh, on the matter of writing style, per yes, se. Yes, yes. Uh, a number of things. Uh, one is um, I, I, just the attitude of backing up claims with evidence. Uh, and this includes 
uh, the traditional rules of usage. If someone says you may not split an infinitive, that Captain Kirk made an error when he said to boldly go where no man has gone before. It should have been to go boldly where no man has gone before. Uh, what I take to be a scientific mindset is, you know, says who? On what basis? What's, the, what's your evidence or, or what's your argument that that, that is a grammatical error? And uh, this doesn't sound like traditional science. It doesn't involve sticking someone's head into a, a brain scanner. But, um, but it, it does involve what, what I consider to be a, kind of a scientific mindset of, first of all, uh, looking at the practice of actual writers of English. So it's a kind of textual or literary analysis, but which I would uh, include under the large, in the large tent of science, uh, that is, treating it as an empirical matter. Is it... Is it true of the English language that careful writers don't split infinitives? And it turns out to be false. And the other is a, a systematic theory of how English works. That is, if given facts about uh, English syntax that we all uh, agree on, the verb comes before the object, not after it, as it does in German. From that set of uncontroversial rules, uh, can you deduce a prohibition against splitting an infinitive? And again, the answer is no. So this is a, uh, as I think in all science, science is, is not a, just a listing of facts. It's an interweaving of theory and uh, observation. And it's that mindset that I think can fruitfully be applied to, um, to usage. Part of that aesthetic you seem to underline is uh, in the uh, clarity of, of logic and how things unfold. So moving from small things to larger things within a sentence or within a paragraph. Could you comment on that a bit? I mean, um, I suppose the old-fashioned manuals would tell you the same thing, but come from, come from a very different position or background. Yes. So, yes. So one of the, uh, the, the, the classic guidelines to good style, I, I certainly didn't, didn't invent it, it uh, probably goes back um, to the Sanskrit grammarians, is uh, put the heavy stuff at the end of the sentence. Uh, it's uh, the, the wild, the innocent, and the E Street Shuffle. Not the E Street Shuffle, the innocent and the wild. Um, the uh, faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. The, the heavy stuff goes at the end. Uh, and th- this is true at almost every level of linguistic structure. The polysyllabic word goes after the monosyllabic word. It's kit and caboodle, not caboodle and kit. Uh, and everything in between. The... Uh, Part of it is the, the meter, and I, I suggest early on in the book that uh, good prose is enlivened by uh, moments of poetry, that often what we enjoy, even in prose, is a pleasing meter, uh, deft use of alliteration and assonance and allusion. Uh, but uh, in addition to meter, the ordering of heavy last um, eases the reader's memory. Because if you've got a big, hairy phrase in the middle of a sentence, you've got to keep it suspended in working memory as you parse the end of it. That is, as you figure out where all the words should go in the logical structure of the sentence. And we know one of the basic principles of cognitive psychology is that our working memory is, is thimble-sized. That's a, there's a big bottleneck. If you put the heaviest phrase at the end then you've figured out where to slot all the words by the time that you are trying to decipher that last phrase. And so that just gives a a feeling of of ease that not only contributes to comprehension, but I think contributes to the the sense of pleasure, that you feel that this is a well-crafted sentence when the the writer shows that degree of consideration. On the visual, which you talked about there and you, you unfold at length in your book, 
Um, I had my own thoughts on that. What, whenever I'm writing a scene uh, that's, let's say, it's either violent emotionally or physically, uh, it's very important to get the visual in the reader's mind, to convey to the reader's mind certain key visual facts, and then the rest can sort of look after itself. And um, I always think that the, the great remark of Conrad uh, from his preface uh, to the Negro of Narcissus, uh, my task, which I'm trying to achieve, is by the power of the written word to make you hear, to make you feel, but it is before all else to make you see. Oh, I wish um, I'd, I wish I'd known I'll, about that. I'll email it to you. I will. Yes, thank you. Um, <laughs> I always thought Conrad failed with Heart of Darkness. Um, he, he doesn't show us what Kurtz is up to. Um, and so uh, he only suggests it. Not enough. But anyway, can we talk about the visual a bit yeah. more in, in, in writing? Because I, I think you really... You, clearly, you and Conrad have, have, have touched on, on something here. A large portion of our brain, is it 35% is dedicated to visual processing or is it more or less, you tell me. Um, we are visual creatures, and good writing always seems to have its, at its heart something intensely visual, even yeah. if it's dealing with abstract matters. Yes, yeah, and even, uh, um, even in um, academic nonfiction writing, I think uh, the, uh, uh, the, the major contributor to that, just feeling of kind of airy, mushy, turgid, bloated... Um, nothingness is that the writer writes in abstractions. And the, the example that I gave of the, uh, the stimulus and the post-stimulus event would be a perfect example. Yeah. Stimulus has a meaning, something that stimulates the organism, but uh, just that word doesn't allow you to form an image of what the stimulus is. The image needn't, by the way, be uh, literally visual. Uh, in fact, in the example that I gave, it was, really was cutaneous. But nonetheless, it is concrete. Uh, it is an entity... Uh, that one can that, that has a, a, a sensual component, and that uh, carries with it a, a expectations of how it behaves in the world. Once you know that something is a tap on the wrist, there's a lot else that you know about it. Yeah. Whereas for stimulus, something's very abstract. Uh, all you know is the definition. And comprehen- uh, comprehension is uh, is uh, enormously easier if you have concrete material to to work with. Uh, probably because we build our abstractions as we learn out of more concrete experience, starting when, when we're children. And ultimately, the, uh, the deepest and most intuitive level of understanding involves uh, something concrete and physical. And a number of scientists have made this point as well, probably most famously Einstein, uh, who said that he was led to his discoveries not by manipulating equations, but by uh, thought experiments. What, what would it be like to be in a plummeting elevator when someone cuts the cable and you uh, take a penny out of your pocket and you uh, try to drop it, things, things like that. Uh, but it, uh, in, I, I think in probably fiction and nonfiction alike, or at least in a lot of it, probably a, a big overlap that the uh, beginning student who, uh, is one of the first things they're told by an instructor is uh, stopping so abstract be more concrete, allow the reader to visualize exactly what you're talking about. Let's just plunge uh, right into the specific. And um, in my generation, I know uh, educated readers who would never, and writers, sorry, who would never use the word hopefully. Mm-hmm. Absolute 
<clears throat> law against it. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about that a minute because there is the quality of, of knowing perfectly well that there are other sentence adverbs that we're happy to use. Sadly, he died, frankly, you're a fool, and all the rest of it. But not hopefully. Someone yeah. has done something to our brains to forbid this. And even when you know it's nonsense, you don't want other people to think you're a complete fool. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> so we're in right. a kind of recursive problem here. Um, set us free. Yes. <laughs> so for those of you who are uh, under the age of 50, uh, maybe 60, uh, there is a rule in uh, prescriptistan that says one may not say, um, hopefully uh, the, 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 uh, the rain will clear up. You know, hopefully the sun will shine. Why? Well, uh, hopefully may only be used for doing something in a hopeful manner. Uh, hopefully Melvin um, sat down six inches closer to Ellen. That's okay. Uh, but, uh, but one may not convey the attitude of a, of a, a speaker. Now, this is, it's a curious rule because uh, there are dozens of adverbs that may be used in either uh, sense, and it's always clear from the from the context, uh, candidly, you know, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Uh, it's, uh, but why hopefully? Well, the, the historical reason is simply that it didn't occur to any English speaker to stretch hopefully from uh, in a hopeful manner to I hope that until the 1930s. So for writers who were first exposed to it in the 1930s, it grated on their ears simply because it hadn't been used that way before. It managed to get um, fossilized into a rule, and what happens is that once a rule is in a rule book, it then gets copied by every successive rule book. Uh, there's an, a, a, an astonishing lack of originality in most of the classic uh, style guides. Uh, and so it, it became something of a shibboleth, um, it, and uh, so, such that if you use hopefully to mean I hope that, you mark yourself as uh, out of the loop, that you must not have uh, been given the word that one may not say that. But, uh, but, 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 if you accept all that, um, but also take your advice that um, you need to assure the reader that you're a literate person and that you've read, yes. and you've read um, you might be giving the wrong signal. Yes. Well, I think that there, in some of these cases, though, the, um, the, the change is inexorable, resistance is, is futile, and uh, as the composition of the literate readership changes, it ceases to be a problem. That is, a generation of readers uh, grows up not realizing there's anything wrong with hopefully. And you might um, uh, annoy or, or lower yourself in the estimation of a declining slice of the demographic uh, readership. Right. Uh, but, but, you know, but that's okay. It, it happened in the past. I mean, another example, which I, I don't even think... I think the last objector... To, to, uh, to this is, is, is already in the grave. But the, um, so the use of the verb t- uh, to contact. Anyone got a problem with that? Now, if you look at the, some of the manuals, like Strunk and White's iconic uh, The Elements of Style, they say, don't use the verb to contact. It's uh, trendy, it's pretentious, uh, and it's vague. You should say to telephone or to write or to uh, get in touch with. Be specific. Be yeah. specific, exactly. Now, of course... Uh, there are often, first of all, 
everyone, this controversy is long forgotten because despite Strunk and White's best efforts, it went viral. Uh, the a generation grew up and forgot about the prohibition, and now it's unexceptionable. Uh, and precisely because um, it is actually sometimes uh, indispensable to have a word that is non-committal as to how one person gets in touch with another, especially you know, to email, to instant message, to text. We should be thankful that we have the verb to contact. And the last, uh, the, the last objector uh, is, I mean, maybe there's a very elderly person in the audience who still thinks it's a, a newfangled uh, innovation. But, and I suspect that's happening with, with hopefully as well. And you, know, you can confirm afterwards whether uh, any of you still bristles at, at that use of hopefully. If, I mean, if a language rule is much like an agreement on a standard for voltage or driving on the left or the right, as you suggest, what do we do with a word like decimate? One-tenth or nine-tenths? All we need is an agreement. Yes, right. There, I think, well, that's, uh, ultimately it is an empirical question. This gets back to uh, taking a scientific approach to language. And, and in fact, the dictionary that I'm associated with um, actually gets the numbers. So we have a usage panel. There are 200 uh, journalists, novelists, writers, poets, linguists, uh, sportscasters, people that we choose because they show evidence of using language with care, and we poll them once a year. Would you actually... So it's a vote? It's a vote. And uh, so, if it's too uh, close... So the wisdom of crowds. It's the wisdom of crowds. Right. And okay. indeed, um, so the difference between driving on the right and driving on the left and the meaning of decimate is that uh, when it comes to decimate... Um, there's no higher authority than the practice of uh, a virtual community of, of careful writers. And if that changes, and sometimes it will change, then uh, that's, that's the, uh, the final arbiter. So in, what is the vote at the Heritage Dictionary? No, no, no problem with decimate, meaning... Um, Nine-tenths. Uh, yeah, that's right. And the idea that this is somehow... Yeah, it'd be tough for a war reporter... I mean, um, probably not. I suspect to get this right. I think that actually the the, the the horse left that barn a long time ago. All right. There was a, um, a New Yorker cartoon that shows a. By the way, oh, I, I, we should probably give the background. There is a uh, a rule that says the decimate may only mean destroy a tenth of, despite the fact that virtually every actual usage means devastate or destroy at least nine tenths. Nine tenths. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> The idea is that since it came from a uh, Roman practice of punishing a mutinous legion by uh, executing every tenth soldier, Mm. uh, the New Yorker cartoon shows a uh, a bunch of Roman soldiers, and there's one of them lying on the ground with a uh, a sword in his chest, and uh, another one says to his neighbor, gee, that wasn't as bad as I thought. (laughs) (laughs) Now... The, the, the rationale behind the rule is that, uh, the, uh, with, uh, that, that since technically decimate, you can hear the, the DEC in decimate, it means a tenth, therefore it must mean uh, destroy a tenth of. Uh, dictionary editors refer to this as the etymological fallacy because it is simply not true that the uh, original sense of a word is its only correct sense. In fact, that's false for probably the majority of English words. And as the editor of the Merriam, one of the editors of Merriam-Webster put it, if you insist that uh, decimate means destroy a tenth of, shouldn't you also insist that December refer to the tenth month? And yeah. Start correcting people when, they, when, when uh, they use September, October, November, and December to not refer to months that aren't seventh, eighth, ninth, and tenth? It cha- usage changes, and we just got to get used to that. We could agree that it just means to move the decimal point one 
<laughs> yes, <the> left. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that would, that would uh, make everyone happy or unhappy. While we're being broad-minded, can we talk about the comma? Ah, yes. <laughs> there, which, where there, I'm, I'm happy to, to, to join the sticklers. So here is the most famous opening sentence of a novel that was ever written, which you quote. But I'm going to read the punctuation as well. It is a truth universally acknowledged, comma, that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Now, that's a breathing comma, what we yes. would call it. breathing comma, good word. Do you, call, you call it something different. Uh, I don't know if there's a name for it, in, uh, but anyway, yeah, a breathing, that's a good word for it. Uh, it simply is a comma indicating, as it were, a pause to take breath, to just let it fold. And yet, any editor uh, would take it. Actually, I forgot to read the second comma. Oh, in possession of a good fortune, comma, must be in want of a wife. From uh, uh, Emma. Any, any yeah. copy editor would remove both of those. Yes. Pride and Prejudice? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Concilience has got some way to go yet. But, some way um, to go, yes. <laughs> uh, we're working on it. Um, The breathing comma is vanishing in favour, you suggest, of the Mm -hmm. syntactical comma, the comma that's dictated not by the sense of how you might speak this and pause, but by uh, the syntax of the sentence itself. And as someone who's been edited a few times by The New Yorker, where where there is a fanaticism about sprinkling commas all over the place, uh, this seems to me... A great tragedy. I mean, uh, I'm one of those people who see a decline in civilization <laughs> in, in just uh, in the way I shouldn't. But yes. this, this is a great loss. Yes. The, uh, so the, the problem with English punctuation is that it, uh, it's, it really is uh, shouldering two burdens. One of them is to indicate where one can take a breath, and the other is to give some hints as to the syntactic phrase structure tree of the sentence. Yeah. Uh, there are, and contrary to the idea that there is um, a, uh, uh, there are high standards for punctuation and that uh, civilization is declining because people flout them, particularly uh, the, the grocers who use an apostrophe for apples uh, and, uh, and so on. The Lindtrusses Eats, Shoots, and Leaves was based on the premise that there are crimes against punctuation, that the rules are, are uh, uh, clear and, and people increasingly flout them. But uh, as it happens, that uh, punctuation in Jane Austen's era was uh, a kind of a, a, a loosey-goosey thing. There were uh, all kinds of practices that often mixed syntax, syntax and uh, um, uh, prosody, or, or uh, the melody and rhythm and, and timing of speech. There are uh, differences on two sides of the Atlantic. The, uh, in general, the Americans are more fastidious about punctuation than the English, and things like the comma splice, which always um, uh, pops out at me, is not as uh, uncommon in, in uh, English prose. There's been a general trend to make punctuation, as, uh, as Ian pointed out, a little less uh, reflective of uh, pronunciation and more... Um, uh, of uh, syntax. And the New Yorker has taken that to an extreme by inserting commas in places where an ordinary reader would just skate over that uh, string of words, and the um, comma actually slows down the reader. It's like kind of playing hopscotch as you work your way through the sentence. And so the New Yorker has a famously eccentric 
policy of sprinkling commas at every phrase boundary. Uh, so is this a, a, a you know, good thing or a bad thing? It's the way the, the language has gone. Oh, I should mention there's another trend, which is to lighten up punctuation. That is, with the exception of the New Yorker, which is, is bucking this trend, um, in general, copy editors now tend to uh, take out commas and encourage their writers to do it, uh, and, and uh, as well as other punctuation marks like, uh, like the hyphen. Yeah. Uh, the Jane Austen's Jane Austen would, would lose grades from an English teacher today or a copy editor because one may not, no matter how long and convoluted the, uh, the, the sentence, put a comma between the subject and the predicate. Uh, but she lives on. Um, <laughs> we're going to take questions from the audience. I, I mean, there's, there's much to talk about. You're mostly addressing those who wish to write expository uh, prose, non-fiction, as it were. But you um, are bound to be aware that, you know, um, for those of us who write fiction, uh, that there was a famous beginning of Pride and Prejudice the famous end of, of perhaps the most famous novel um, is entirely without punctuation. <laughs> yes, um, true. Well, here it is. Um, but I'm not going to read the whole 35 pages. Uh, but I asked him with my eyes to ask again, yes, and then he asked me, would I, yes, to say yes, my mountain flower, and first I put my arms around him, yes, and drew him down to me, so he could feel my breasts, all perfume, yes, and his heart was going like mad, and yes, I said, yes, I will, yes. It's amazing without punctuation. Yes. And how terrible it would be to insert it. Absolutely. Well, that's, if I could make a comment on that. This, it, uh, in general... This, sorry, this is Ulysses, in case... Uh, yes, and, uh, and, not, I, and I knew that. Um, LAUGHTER <laughs> uh, I think this is this, uh, it's actually a nice illustration of the point that, that um, all of the advice <coughs> on usage has to be relative to the goals of the writer. Uh, and, that, and again, one of the things that drives me crazy about the classic style manuals is that they assume there's one way of writing and these are rules that you must follow and you're making an objective error if you flout them. Now, in this case, I, went, I mentioned classic style, the, uh, the, the imagined scenario of the reader and writer in conversation. The reader, writer has noticed something, wants to call attention to the reader. Um, that is one style. It's not the only style. Uh, all the resources of language, the word choice, the phrase structure, the punctuation, the paragraph breaks, everything, are their tools. They're means to an end that a writer um, uh, aims to accomplish. What makes writing bad is not that the writer departs from one of these models. is that the writer doesn't know what he or she is doing. That is, the writer either doesn't know what the aim is or has an aim and chooses the wrong tool for the job. Now, Ulysses, famously, uh, is not the model of classic style. Uh, it is not that there is... The model of classic style is predicated on objective external truth. The whole assumption of classic style is there is a real world, it's out there, it's not subjective, anyone suitably positioned... Uh, could see it if only they're given an unobstructive view. Now, that is, I think, a good model for a lot of expository prose, but famously, what Joyce was doing was, uh, couldn't be more different, namely giving a, a taste of a, uh, a stream of consciousness. Representation of, of consciousness. Representation yeah. of consciousness. Now, f- for that, 
uh, it's, uh, the genius was to use the resources of the English language, despite the fact that consciousness is not uh, a, uh, a set of sentences, it's uh, very hard to capture, but by issuing punctuation and doing many other things, came as close as possible to using the resources of the English language to render a stream of consciousness. Now, he violated many rules of classic style, but that's exactly what he was trying to do. And he's a great writer because he did that. He knew what he wanted to do, and he used the resources of the English language to do it. Any questions? Yes, and a uh, microphone will, will find you. Oh, do you want to? No, you okay. I should do it? You should do it. Okay. Eva uh, from the European Commission in Brussels. Uh, a qu- uh, question, first of all, for Stephen Pinker, and uh, a comment following up on hopefully. First of all, the question. Uh, you said that uh, there's no legislative body for English, of course, unlike uh, the, the such bodies for French and Spanish. But that doesn't mean to say there isn't um, legislation. Um, and perhaps you might like to say something about um, Obama's move to um, make sure that um, people obey the law because they actually understand it and know how to fill in forms and um, obey various rules, regulations and on, uh, what they, on their civic rights that they should be able to do that because they understand what it is that's required because it's in plain English. Now, the Swedes are pioneers in this kind of work. They decided um, a while ago, quite some time ago, that um, you can't really have a democracy if people don't understand the law. Well, can we let Stephen answer that uh, on Obama? Uh, Because there are lots of people with lots of questions. Yes. No, I think there are increasingly plain language laws... Uh, which I think are, are uh, a wonderful thing for precisely the reason that you mentioned, namely if a uh, citizenry can't understand the uh, law uh, or government forms, then there's a real sense in which they're being uh, mis- misgoverned. Uh, and, and so I'm in favor of, of plain language laws. They're very different from the rulings of, say, the French Academy in that they don't dictate uh, such matters as uh, the use of hopefully or the... Um, uh, spelling and punctuation, but rather our uh, guidelines, uh, much like some of the ones that go into classic style, be concrete, use, don't be afraid of using the first and second person, uh, use the passive voice judiciously, you know, avoid it in contexts where uh, it, it gets in the way, uh, be concrete and so on, um, and, and sometimes test the wording to make sure it is comprehensible. Uh, so those, are, those would all be pushing in, in the direction that, that I'm uh, advocating, even though they wouldn't be legislating on the, the uh, structure of the English language itself. Can I come back on I think we should let someone else... Uh... Yeah. In the back there? Last row? Yes. Yes. Uh, I've uh, encountered a phenomenon in the last three or four years of people using however in the middle of a sentence to introduce a new clause. Um, And it really... I can't bear it. I almost can't carry carry on reading. And is it... Am I going to find myself in 20 years' time completely uh, like the people, the hopefully people? And what's your view on on however in the middle of a sentence? Well, well, probably what you're noticing is uh, is the use of a comma splice. 
That is, since there's nothing wrong with beginning a sentence with however, what your, what's, what's, uh, your P probably consists of the person not putting a full stop at all the material before the however. So this is the comma splice that, uh, or some comma fault, or uh, that, that, uh, that I'll, I'll, I'll confess I'm sympathetic. It drives me crazy as well. However, <laughs> uh, I, I'm always wary of the phrase, I've noticed it recently, because if you actually um, look it up, most things that people notice recently are not recent. Uh, and one could verify this either with, uh, by going to the style books of um, a couple of decades ago and you'll find the same complaints. Or now, re- more recently, you can actually check it more objectively by going to the Google Ngram viewer where you can search a text string up to five uh, words long in 200 words of digitized English books. Um, most uh, contemporary complaints actually go way back. Now, uh, it's... The, your question is uh, the fact that I that you notice it um, and it's found. Does it mean that it will take over and become standard? And the answer is not necessarily. So, in a process that I don't think anyone really understands, it may be as capricious as other cultural changes like like fashion and clothing. Some um, novel usages that are perceived as errors become take over and become unexceptionable. They, they reach a tipping point, so, so to speak, like to contact, like, and, and hopefully is almost all the way there. Others, uh, the preferred usage stands its ground for uh, long stretches of time. So in the early 1960s, when the usage, so-called usage wars began, or the grammar wars, because of the publication of a allegedly prescriptive, uh, descriptive American dictionary, Webster's Third. There was a prediction by the literary critic Dwight MacDonald that by 1988, the dictionaries would accept uh, mischievous, uh, invidious, and uh, nuclear as a pronunciation of nuclear. Because if you acknowledge that these errors exist, then uh, the, the, the floodgates open, the, the, the ramparts are overrun, and the language deteriorates. Well, we've had, he made that prediction in 1963. Well, it's not just 25 years later, it's 50 years later. And I looked it up, and there is no dictionary that has mischievous, invidious, or nuclear. Uh, so uh, it is, even though there are some cases where resistance is, is futile, there are other cases in which you can go ahead and continue to stickle, and probably the majority of literate readers may continue to be on your side 50 years from now. We don't know. Uh, I don't know if the comma splice, which, by the way, is uh, what irks you, is actually has been common in a lot of uh, English writing um, before there was something of a crackdown. Whether we'll go back to the comma splice, I don't know. I tend to doubt it. But... Oh, you're beckoning over to... We have a question. Oh, yes, Oliver. Oliver Cam. The... Uh, Self-described, ironically self-described uh, pedant of the Times. Uh. I'm Oliver Cam. I'm language columnist of the Times. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, you argue very forcefully, very brilliantly, that the idea that standards of language are declining is false, and it's been heard in as you say, literally every generation since the invention of the printing press. What do you make of the idea? Is there any um, sense to the idea that standards of language are improving? I'm thinking of 
the argument of Otto Jespersen, the great Danish scholar of English grammar, that language moves to maximum expressiveness, and the more recent argument of Noam Chomsky, that language is perfect. From what I know of your writings and our discussions, you, I suspect you would disagree with that, but perhaps you could comment on it. Yeah. I, I think it's a hard question to answer because there's no such thing as language. There are languages used in, in so many different ways by so many different people for so many different purposes that, uh, um, that it's actually an error to talk about the language. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why I uh, don't subscribe to the idea that, say, Twitter is forcing us to, to think shorter thoughts because um, all of us, uh, each individual uses language in a variety of forms, and in, depending on the context. You speak differently to your spouse over, or, or your kids over the breakfast table than you do if you were delivering a funeral oration uh, or if you were speaking on the BBC. Uh, and Twitter is just one of many registers or forms of language. And so to ask the question, is language as a whole getting more expressive, there are just too many different ways in which it's been used. The, one could ask the question of, you know, say, in, in the language used in newspapers, even then different newspapers have slightly different styles and tones. Uh, so I don't think it's getting worse than that. I don't think the best. Maybe that would be a kind of benchmark. Well, hi there. Um, I was really interested in this difficult dilemma w- between he and she, <clears throat> sort of gender literacy. And I noticed in your presentation, and you know, given that you're talking about the visual picture of conveying empath- empathically, a story to the audience that twice, and I'm not a feminist, but I just noticed that twice you referred to reader as she and writer as he. And sitting, no, I'm interested, sitting down, I did notice you used he or she, and it struck me because in the things that I do, I have to stumble around being not only politically correct, but making sure that I'm conveying truthfully what I'm trying to say um, and have this dilemma of he and she, and it's very clumsy. So I was just curious how you feel it's best to handle that yes. in that the old-fashioned way of just using man, he, you know, as the generic for all of us yes. has passed by. Yeah, it's, a, um, it's one of many cases in which the resources of the English language just aren't up to the demands of, uh, of writers and communication. So it's a case, to get back to uh, Oliver Cam's question, where the language quite flagrantly is not perfect. Uh, very far from being perfect, because there is no way to refer to a generic individual uh, without making some kind of trade-off. Now, there are a number of options uh, facing a writer. The one that I use, that I personally used in the book was uh, to alternate in chapters between having the generic writer being consistently he and the generic reader consistently she, and uh, the other way around. And fortunately, I have an even number of chapters. We've got time for just one Last question, and can it be phrased briefly? And then may I ask you one last question? Okay. I think uh, you're sounding at least as if you're overly sanguine about poor use of English. It struck me that it's really a serific point if, if certain uh, uh, cultures are using too much uh, poor English, it will behave as a shibboleth and people who look towards those people will, whether rightly or wrongly, judge them as being uneducated or basic. And it's really not terribly uh, good to 
leave people with the impression that it doesn't really matter ultimately. It, it really is a seritic problem. It, it matters how much you, you do that. And whether you're intelligent or not, people will assume you're not. No, I, I, I agree that uh, part of being educated is uh, writing uh, to in conformity with the expectations of a literate readership. So the fact that some rules are uh, irrational and don't contribute to clear prose and never did and have been flouted by the great writers of English and should just be uh, expunged from the rule books doesn't mean that no one should pay attention to how they write. Uh, and um, uh, one can write clearly using, hopefully using so-called singular they. Uh, it doesn't mean that one should not be mindful of the um, grammar, the punctuation, the spelling of English. So yes, part of education should be uh, improving the quality of one's prose, just that improving the quality of one's prose does not consist of obeying every rule that every purist has ever uh, floated. And my question is, which, uh, which style books, if any, did you read uh, when, you, when you were uh, mastering your craft? Well, the one I still reach for, because I'm still... Oh, good trying to get the hang of it um, <laughs> is Birchfield's revision of Fowler oh, yes. which I think uh, sails very beautifully uh, between the prescriptions of the of the old and, uh, and, and an awareness of, of, of contemporary usage and if I find myself in a tangle that uh, I cross the room and, and go straight to that Anyway, that's enough about me. Um, Stephen, thank you very much. Another elegant, beautiful book. Um, This is, I think, our seventh public discussion in the last 14 years. Uh, Congratulations on it, and, and again, thank you very much.